Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley. I'm here with Mike Mitchell. And this weekly Hello. segment, we're going to cover the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as any thoughts and su- on the subject and strategies we consider to use. So with that, for this week of October 17th, Mike, why don't you take us away with your first story? Absolutely. Hey, Scott. Uh, another week, another set of stories. So we're going to start off with a bleeping computer article um, following up on a story we talked about last week that the, the Fortinet um, CVE that was released last week. Um, so now there's a follow-up article talking about the admins uh, urging admins to patch the bug. Um, it looks yeah. like there are some active exploits that have started, of course. Um, and so with the CVE, uh, they're just reiterating that you should patch, especially with some of the exposed services that are out on the internet. You know, from from last week, I think the the new piece to this is that they actually provided the proof of concept, um, and so this allows those admins to test and validate their the vulnerabilities and exploits. But it also gives the attackers in the world a place that they can play, right? It kind of opens up the playground in the sandbox so they can figure out the exploit, which you actually get access to, how you can pivot. Um, so it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Um, Scott, any any kind of points to this as you would be the ones kind of deploying the proof of concepts to understand the threat. Yeah. So when I was looking at this, you know, the same thought, like obviously that it's escalated, you know, a bit after it's gone public. Um, and, you know, there's still those valid mitigations they supplied that we talked about last week um, that makes sense. But something I, I noticed too, and it's something good for, I think, people to be aware of, um, you know, the CISO.gov site, they have a known exploited vulnerabilities catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually hit that list. Um, and basically, for those who aren't aware of that, it's it's some way where some vulnerability gets exploited to the extent that they need to make notice, a record of it, and kind of track it. Um, and for threat hunters and people trying to secure the organization, one, it's a great place to add some clout to, hey, if you're running into resistance to remediate this and get this thing patched, you can say, hey, it's is on the, you know, exploited known exploited vulnerabilities list by CISA, maybe we should take this more serious. Or if you know you have these vulnerabilities in your environment and you're not in a position to patch or whatever the you know reason may be, these are good vulnerabilities for you to possibly do some research on, have an idea of if an attacker were to get in your environment, if you have these vulnerabilities, these are places for you to look for possible um, exploitation and things like that. So it kind of becomes a library for those things once you know yourself well enough with the your vulnerability scans and stuff like where to start potentially yeah so you know that, this, i thought that was a good resource yeah absolutely and, and just to play devil's advocate um these companies like gray noise and bad packets and there are a few other ones showed in do a great job of of um, you know putting all of this information in one place makes it easily easily searched on the CVEs, the exploits and vulnerabilities and, and starting to understand where what people are doing to um, potentially exploit these type of attacks. But if you're maybe say on the offensive side or an attacker and they're dropping a list of 
scanning attempts and attempted exploits based on, you know, like Shodan is a great example. It'll drop every IP address that shows up from the scanning exploit. Doesn't that give you a really good place to start? Oh, absolutely. Especially if you know if it's a known exploit, right? I mean, there's there's like um, plugins and a lot of the tools where you can pull in the Shodan data and pull in things like that for mass scans, mass exploitations, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, it's uh, it, when people when things get this much visibility, you know, with the media, with people scanning for it, you know, all that kind of stuff. It also creates a resource for now attackers to have. Well, this stuff's already discovered by somebody. Um, now, if I want to use this or have intended use, um, it just kind of shortcuts some of the processes. Absolutely. And luckily, this exploit again, as we mentioned last week, um, there's some ways you can mitigate it without having to do the full patch cycle. Again, limiting your IP addresses that can reach those public admins um, via policy. That should be a very, very easy and immediate fix that you can do. Outside of you then looking for some of the um, uh, string-based uh, data that you can look for in the logs for uh, exploited access or doing a full patch. So luckily this one can be tailored in a kind of a staged approach where you can protect yourself. You can, you know, run kind of a, a retroactive search and then you can, you know, run the full patch cycle. So hopefully these admins are reading these articles, reading the CISA reports and, and running through these steps. And I think this article did a really good job of at least showing a way that you can mitigate and kind of uh, waterfall mm -hmm. this approach. So cool. I think, Again, we'll follow this one. I'm sure there'll be an article next week, but uh, it seems like this is one that kind of is a continual, um, you know, staged process. So we'll, we'll get some more information probably. So next up. Yeah. So um, one of the ones I'm going to talk about, there was a ZDNet article that kind of took me down this path. And the, the article was Microsoft warns over unusual ransomware attacks. And, you know, it was interesting. They were talking about this uh, prestige ransomware. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was something that was attacking targets in Poland and Ukraine um, seems to be kind of motivated based on, you know, what was going on with the war based efforts. Um, but I kind of pivoted to that originating article from Microsoft. So if, if people are looking to kind of look more into this, Microsoft dubbed this unidentified threat actor as Dev0960. Um, so if you're looking for that, you can, you can find this article as well or more information about this group that they kind of put together. But they were saying it was unusual. And one of the things I thought was interesting was it was an attack where there weren't really any known exploits used. It seems like the actor already had credentials. So, you know, and you know, we're kind of tying it to um, their victimology. It looked like a lot of like where Hermetic Wiper and things like that were used, this, the exact same victims were hit um, with some more victims on the list. Uh, so it kind of makes me think of, you know, everyone talks about nation state activities and how like they just want to gain access and just do recon. And that's usually what we see when we're defending against them, because there's not really a, a, a war effort or something going on to drive further on activity. Um, but I think this is a great case. And if I was an intelligence person asking those questions, it's like, OK, they already have credentials. That means and they had domain admin credentials in some cases in these um, some of the victims. That means they were sitting present and laying wait, right, until the right time to do what they need to do. Um, so this is a prime example of, you know, when you're defending, this is why proactive hunting is kind of important in these, these you know, circumstances, because 
people might have access and they don't really have a need for it at that given point in time. But when they do, it can be pretty impactful. In this case, they were deploying um, enterprise-wide ransomware, right, across the entire right. enterprise. Um, but they did share some things that I thought were important to take note. Um, and that is they had three methods of how they deployed things enterprise-wide. Um, they used two remote execution utilities. They use remote exec and in-packet WMI exec, which it seems like they use a lot of WMI um, in their attacks, but they were moving their payload um, at a two to the three methods uh, to the admin shares, admin dollar sign shares. Um, and then from that, after moving the payload over, then they had different ways to execute it. And the, uh, the first way they actually were creating a scheduled task. So they were using um, Impacket to create a scheduled task to you know, target that admin share payload. Um, so this is something, you know, we had um, some threat hunting content around this. So if you guys aren't familiar with our Hunter platform, you go to cyborgsecurity.com and you sign up in the top right, you can get a community access to um, our platform, which this package is there. And it's actually looking for um, the services EXE that Windows uses to you know, kick off its services and targeting any time that admin share is being utilized because it's a weird location to be leveraged in a service that's being stood up. Um, and the admin share, you can you know, tweak it. You know, it does convert to the C Windows directory. Um, so it's kind of like a variable, environment variable type path. But um, so that's something that easy to kind of detect this kind of behavior. But they did have some other ways they executed um, that admin share, they used PowerShell. So they use Impacket to basically execute PowerShell to detonate it, you know, looking for things like that. And then something that I thought was interesting, they, you know, they called it like a unique method, but they used um, GPO. So there were times where they had the full domain access, moved over their, you know, payload over to the domain controller, and then used group policy to push out um, an update to execute the malware across the enterprise. So that I've seen before. Um, other ransomware groups have tried that same technique. Um, and something to take note is if, if that is the case, there's going to be a force GP update command that has to be pushed as well, because there's usually that random 90 minute interval to kind of control GPO updates. So that's kind of a telling sign that that was utilized that way. Um, and they did mention, you know, four other tools or no, I'm sorry, three other tools. Um, which are pretty common, but it's usually used for a privilege escalation or credential extraction. So maybe they had admin access, but they didn't have full domain access and they need to get, you know, pivot to that. Um, and they use WinPeas, which you can find on GitHub, W-I-N-P-E-A-S. Uh, it's an open source tool that lets you kind of basically evaluate your environment to know where you can use privilege escalation. So it helps you kind of discover those areas. They use so the that com yeah, so it kind of dumps a report. It dumps is very verbose, has a lot of information. It it seems like the dump isn't. There's so much information, it almost doesn't look clean. Um, but I haven't played with it too much. I just know we you know we've worked with people to have. Um, right. And then the com svcs.dll they use that to dump the LSAS, which is kind of a common technique. And then the NTD util, which is usually used to dump the Active Directory database. You know that's pretty common too. Sure. Um, those are the kind of the other things they called out. Uh, but if you go to that Microsoft blog page, they actually had some good um, hunt queries at the bottom. You know, they're very specific and targeted. I'd probably look at how you can make them more broad. Um, but they actually had some good starting points for hunting within if you use the Defender or Sentinel type um, infrastructure for that. So that was also a good thing too. Yeah, I didn't look at those queries. Um, I missed that article. But are they 
are they looking for a lot of the services that you just mentioned? So the the biggest thing they focused on from the few I looked at, um, one was looking at hashes, right? Typical. Sure. Um, but the they have one where they're looking at um, WMI calling CMD EXE to do yeah. things. So it's kind of like that WMI pivot when you use remote WMI, um, which is common, right? So that execution with WMI, um, I think we have some things on that too. Uh, that's a good thing to look for. And they had some regex based on some commands for like dumping LSAS with that, the comms service DLL. Um, sure. So, but all, all well-known techniques. Um, so no, nothing unique there. They just thought the attack was very weird because it's like they already were there. And then this happened versus yep. trying to get in and do your typical social engineering and stuff that led into all this. So. Right. Yeah. And I think um, you made a couple of really awesome points around you know, most of, it used to be a couple of years back, it used to be, I'm going to gain access, sit and wait, watch, um, scan, right? And then, so as ransomware came out, there's a little, there was a, a time delta that they really needed, they get in, they attack, and they're trying to get to some sort of goal, which was monetary value, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so this one's really interesting. And there's a lot of things from an engineering perspective, I think you could do um around at least tracking anomalies um those admin access and they mentioned mfa um uh gpo policy pushes or changes don't happen on a day-to-day -day basis that's normally an organization-wide change so if something happens on a random tuesday that your admins aren't doing there's some ways you can start logging that data um and to your point i think wmi logging powershell logging ps exec like picking up on some of those type of services and, and having that visibility is really important in these kind of cases. Again, that proactive funding to catch this early. Um, and this really, really, really drills into visibility is key, right? There's a lot of things yeah. you can do after the fact, but um, th there's some activity that should be noticed if, if those type of users are in for a long time. Yeah, they had some other things that you know we commonly see with malware or ransomware specifically, where when something's executed, like the deleting the, the shadow copies and doing that stuff mm -hmm. that as the ransomware is running. And, you know, I understand detecting those is kind of good because you know you're hit with ransomware, but you're kind of known. So right. if you look at that article, they have some suggestions for ways to detect the ransomware running. And I feel like when you really want to look for those are for places where people aren't using the box or the host, right? right? Like your endpoints, right. users are going to be on those, they're going to see it, but those servers you're not interacting with all the time, that you want to know to be able to at least respond with backups or whatever you need to do to contain. Sure. Um, those are, I think, really good places to deploy some of those. So they had some really unique things they kind of did. And those are really good for fingerprinting ransomware too, right? So, mm -hmm. so you know, yeah, this is this variant, this is this attack, this is this actor kind of thing. So there's mm -hmm. some of that, but there's a lot of overlap with all those techniques now because people kind of do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then we also don't understand the the kind of the setup of the organizations that have been hit, right? Um, we talk about segmentation. Um, you mentioned servers that aren't typically used. I mean, I know a lot of times if there's Unix servers, I wouldn't put those on any type of domain, right? Um, segment those production servers or you know any type of kind of offloaded workload that doesn't need human interaction. You know that segregation is really important. So we have no idea, right? I think that's yeah. typically not in the reports that come out are the 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 actual um help and, and maintenance of those organizations so um awesome yes yeah, so that's so, all we got all right 
Um, so the next article came out of cybernews.com and it's specific to a group called Killnet. Um, and so recently this group has popped up. It's a, uh, specific to uh, you know, the current region um, within Ukraine and Russia. Um, but this article is really interesting because it, it kind of talks through their maturity level um, as an organization and as a group and why um, it's important to track these type of groups as they progress from a maturity perspective. So they started out targeting, um, I think it said, uh, a Eurovision song contest, right? And they started out using DDoS as their main method. Um, and, you know, some people, you know, called them script kitties, which is typically, you know, a group or people that just use the, the default um, programmatic scripts or languages or uh, programs available and tools uh, that are set up to do hacking, but typically aren't supposed to be used for malicious intent. But it looks like this group is starting to mature a little bit, right? Um, and there's a lot of services and offering out there that could potentially make them, you know, a target for, you know, tracking larger organizations. Uh, I think recently they actually attacked uh, a couple of U.S. airports just defacing the websites, but things are starting to ramp up, right? So um, your takes on this from a, you know, the, an APT group type organization. Yeah, so I think it's interesting, uh, like the paradigm where you have these underground groups that are standing up and working on behalf of nation's interests, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's It's almost like mercenary work, but it's not really mercenary work. So it's almost, you know, they used to define you know, that skill level when you talk about script kitty, like script kitty to lone wolf, which is like slightly better to hacktivist, right. to organize cyber crime to nation state. And now yeah. I feel like you've got like this category of nation state hacktivism. Sure. Where it's almost yeah. like, you yeah. know, you're, you're basically politically motivated in some way to work on behalf of a nation state. Right. And um, so you get more you recent, right. 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 And that there's a um, weird thing, like they can start going after people or organizations that that nation state is like, we're not, you know, typically don't want to touch that. Right. So yeah, yeah. it's interesting to see that divided. And then, you know, the, the thing too is, you know, we use script kitties to define like when you're a big enough organization and your, your security programs mature enough, you feel that script kitties aren't really your threat you're interested in. Like you're investing to deal with much more complicated threats because the tooling you have handles script kitties. Well, the problem is, is all the tooling that's been developed and is being utilized in attacks is the same tooling nation states is using as script kitties now. So that right. like that bar of entry to be an effective offensive person to just, you know, cause issues really has nothing to do with capability from like a, a, a technical understanding. It really is more to do with your SOPs and operational sense. They're kind of, that's how I feel like you got to measure these people, right? That's like someone cool. who's really sophisticated isn't based on the technology anymore. It's more about how they, how focused are they? How methodical are they? How efficient are they? Um, which really then is more of like a maturity framework for attackers, not a technical framework. Um, which I think is an also interesting thing to kind of point out nowadays because, you know, we are the ones as defenders that I think are also preventing this technical separation between the script kitties and nation states because we have a hard time detecting these open source tooling. Like, you know, there's a lot of tools that or things right. you buy or implement or, you know, if you're not hunting for them, 
if if they work, they're going to be utilized in this low bar tooling that is really effective. We're not stopping. So now they're being used across the board and they're impacting us in all, in all the same ways. So uh, Metasploit comes to mind, right? Um, yeah. I think yeah. we actually put out a collection against red teaming tools for that purpose explicitly, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. I love your point around just because you have the tool doesn't mean you know how to use it, right? right. Um, and so there's a lot of really great scripts and programs built into Metasploit for red teaming, but the combination of those tools for specific purposes where it gets dangerous, right? Where you can really start to build your operation um, and your tradecraft to do these type of things. So the tool in itself isn't bad, it's how you use it, of course, right? We, there's plenty of uh, allegories to that, um, but uh, it is interesting to kind of watch their progress, right? Because it's really just about a maturity level. Maybe they're doing step one, baby steps to start, and they're gonna to get to a place where they're actually utilizing that tool set in a, a little bit more aggressive manner. So, um, yeah, next one. Yeah, so um, this is a, an article off of the Security Boulevard, um, and it's called Fake News, New Malware Drive Recent Attacks, right? I, You know, it was interesting reading this article because it really, kind of top down talked about all the emerging malwares, all the emerging tool sets, kind of just creating this landscape that things aren't getting better, right? And that was like, okay, you know, nothing interesting, but there was a part near the bottom that, you know, I, I kind of stood out to me. And that was when they were talking about how fake news was being used to leverage and drive more social engineering attacks. And I know I've talked about it previously, like when we were talking, I don't know, a few times back about, you know, Russia's ability to utilize real events they can control in the world, like, you know, military mobilization and things like that to then uh, make their cyber command more effective or cyber operations more effective with, you know, phishing emails and social engineering. And so that tie, you know, it's interesting now, it's like the same method where if you can kind of control the fake news and then you can also leverage that to better social engineer people, it's the same thing. It's just taking something that's less physical in the world, but you're still controlling the the carrot and the stick, you know, at the same time. Um, so I thought that was an interesting kind of a strategy, and some it makes me think, you know, now you used to pay attention to political geopolitical issues to know like what threats may be important to me. Now I feel like you've almost got to pay attention to what are the polarized things in news to help defend against the things that people might try to exploit people on um, more sure. so often than, you know, just real physical events, uh, which is more taxing, but you know, then you start have to look for like keywords, things for subjects and emails and yeah. things like that maybe, but yeah, it's, it's a different uh, dichotomy. Do you think this applies to organizational uh, phishing attempts or more personalized? So I was trying to like brainstorm on that too, because obviously the personal is a give, you know, dead giveaway, right? right? Because those are the people that are gonna be polarizing things. But you know, I was also thinking, if someone really wanted to, it could be turned to target enterprise. I don't see that yet, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things where maybe it's worth people to kind of at least think about. Well, if they did, what would you do? Like, how would you handle it? You know, how would you, you know? So I think it's a good exercise, at least, you know internally to kind of think about those things right um i think one that could cross over and i don't want to give anybody any ideas but <laughs> uh they just launched the site for federal student loan relief right oh yeah and so that's a great opportunity to to fish people 
on a fake site with fake cred, social security numbers, all these things, right? So I actually had a friend send me over the link. He's like, hey, is this legit? Um, because it was when they were doing the beta. So of course I yeah. clicked it in a safe environment, looked at it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is a real link. They're actually doing a beta rollout, it's smart. But I could see that being turned into some sort of HR email internally, right? Um, it, there's a lot of opportunity there um, that could get some clicks. But that gets into what the article is talking about is just uh, general kind of cybersecurity knowledge. It always goes into the corporate training, understanding who and what is sending messages to the organization. Because um, mm-hmm. the ability to craft le- legitimate looking emails it's getting a lot easier now, right? We talked about last week where they're actually offering you up templates um, to be able to deploy things, especially on Microsoft 365. Yeah. So um, I think a lot of it's about the education and awareness across the board, across the whole organization. So yeah, so something that I think you know a lot of companies sometimes they scrutinize, sometimes they don't. But I feel like more now, especially with these types of things, there's like any of the personal emails that you could. Like like Gmail or Hotmail or you know you name those like public publicly available personal emails, there should be some scrutiny on receiving those on enterprise accounts, right? So you know Absolutely. because I feel like it would be really weird if you got a compromised enterprise account sending you an email, which is a good technique, right? Already compromised, you know, enterprise account that looks legitimate mm-hmm. or is legitimate, it'd be really unlikely for them to send this polarized, biased, false news stuff than it would be from a personal account. So yeah, I feel absolutely. like the avenues at which the information can be shared or sent, um, if you can kind of control those or put some controlling around those, or even if you're going to be looking into those, you kind of know in your head, like that doesn't add up, kind of yeah. gives you a ways to hunt for those kind of anomalies. Um, something to kind of think about too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, you said the overall theme of this article, as you read it, is like, everything's just getting bad. <laughs> everything's bad, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and there's always going to be net new tactics and techniques and malware and threats like that is never going to go away. I think the thing that it does talk about a little bit, but it's just about being able to, to have a counteroffensive against that kind of thing. Right. So the education, the tooling, the capabilities of the internal employees, the kind of general understanding of the landscape. Um, I think there's some core tenets that you can learn. And you've talked a lot about those through this podcast of how to look for things, the visibility, understanding what the threat and the behaviors are. Um, that helps you cover a wide variety of these threats, right? And, uh, you know, from a hunting perspective, which was really interesting, I think we did an exercise where we had packages that covered multiple strains of malware and behaviors and exploits and vulnerabilities, right? So having that core understanding allows you to protect yourself across a wide variety of threats. I know they're all different, but again, as we talked about, those behaviors typically are going to be somewhat similar across the the different yeah. um, threats. Unless people stop using Windows, you know, it's like one of those <laughs> right. things. There's always a consistency in technology that is going to make some consistencies in attacks. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, great. So the next one, this is a this is a fun one. It's a little bit outside the normal conversation point, but it still deals with uh, ransom. Um, so Deadbolt. Oh, sorry, before that, uh, this is coming from Bleeping Computer. Um, it's about Deadbolt ransomware um, and the ability for uh, this police organization to kind of trick the actor um, and be able to recover 
the decryption keys without actually having to pay the ransom. So Deadbolt is a ransomware operation that's been going on since January. Um, and I believe they were able to retrieve 155 keys, so 90% of the victims, which is pretty amazing, right? Yeah. Um, and they did it in a novel way. So I don't think they mentioned what coin they were expecting from the ransomware. Yeah, I didn't see that. So now we're, yeah, now we're getting into blockchain and some of the cryptocurrency. Um, but there's a concept of proof of work in crypto. Uh, I won't give the whole background of how it works, but basically when you pay somebody, there's also what they call a gas or a fee. And so that's kind of the processing fee of um, allowing uh, that transaction to go through and actually make it to the blockchain. And so what these police officers did, I think they were Dutch police officers, they paid the lowest amount of fee or, or gas possible. And so with crypto right now, it's, it's, it's highly congested. So it takes time for those transactions to go through. So they paid the ransom and paid the lowest amount of fee or gas possible. And what was really interesting is on the attacker side, they had some automation in place that was looking at the blockchain. So when the when the process actually posted, they released the decryption keys. So these police officers were able to pay for the the ransom. They paid the lowest amount of gas. It posted, the decryption keys were released, and they pulled back the transaction. So they never actually had to pay the money. I don't know if the fee price or the gas price went through or not, but they were able to pull back that, that transaction. So this is a really novel way to get the money back. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, uh, I guess, crack or change how blockchains works. They didn't actually right. like decrypt anything. They just, they were able to manipulate the process. So I thought that was a really interesting way to get through this. I don't know if they knew how the actors process worked internally. I don't know if it was a guess or they had some, intrinsic knowledge of how that worked, but it was a really interesting way to get the keys back. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, kudos to them. That was a great idea. And it, I thought it was interesting because like you said, they kind of attacked the process, right? Yep. They understood how the process worked and then they were going to try something to see if it would, they'd benefit themselves from it. And it was interesting because that's what offensive guys do, right? Yep. They look at a process and they try to find, well, how can I, you know, break this process or do something different in this process that's not typical to get desired results. And so defensively, they're able to do that. And it kind of reminded me of a um, an offensive guy I, I knew um, in the military. Um, we he went by Krusty, right? That was his his name. But he was he was doing like a summary of like, you know, what is it about attacking that works or the mindset of offensive person? And you know he he talked about how he was given like a, a pin thing one time and in his mind, he just kept clicking this thing. And, you know, not because he knew what was going to happen after he clicked it 800 times, but then his mind was always like, what if I do 801? What if I do 802? Well, he clicked it so many times he broke it, but he eventually got to the point where it would break after so many times. And I think that's like that offensive, like, well, what if I do this slightly different thing or one more time or whatever? And then he went and kind of pivoted into like a real life process of like, he's like, you know, how to get a free cheeseburger from McDonald's. He was like, you go to McDonald's that's completely packed and busy. And then you walk up to the counter acting all frustrated. And then you say, yeah, I didn't get my cheeseburger. And, you know, knowing that McDonald's, their process is they're trying to go for customer satisfaction and, you know, they want people to be served and, you know, have their stuff. 
they're not going to be thinking about, well, I need to validate this. I need to go through this long process. They got right, other people right. they got to keep happy too. It's more effective for them just to give you the cheeseburger, right? Right. Um, and Do we need to put a disclaimer idea. on this podcast that we don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we don't approve of this process? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, it's it's not the right thing to do, but the idea is really wrapped around there are processes for why or how businesses or things work, like the crypto, right? It had yep. a specific way it was supposed to operate, um, and you were allowed to pull out, apparently. If you were to start something and you want to back out of it, you could. That was kind of built sure. in. Now, the disappointing thing was, obviously, Deadbolt was able to fix their stuff fairly quickly, and now they do full verification. Right. Wish we as defenders could do the same thing for our processes, but maybe they're not as simple as this one. But right. um, it's just kind of that's a good. I think it's cool that defensively they're able to use process against offensive people and we kind of do it with behaviors, right? Yeah. Offensive people have specific behaviors and we use that against them by understanding, well, this is their process. So we expect, you know, one of these five things to happen. So yeah. how do we see these five things? Um, but yeah, so it, sometimes it's not about exploiting technology. It's right. processes are more vulnerable in most cases. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they, they have the ability to change their process probably a little bit quicker. It's probably a couple lines of code change yeah. Yeah. where the change of full behavior takes a lot more time. Right. Um, right. but it, it, it was interesting. So it said 90% success rate. I wonder if those 10% were the test case where they paid. And they kind of tracked how much time it took to actually so, get the decryption key. Right? I read that is they were able to get 90% before Deadbolt realized and stopped the transaction. Oh, so it wasn't let's do all of these at once. They they yeah. had 155 iterations of doing the thing. <laughs> yeah. That's so, interesting. Okay. But but yeah, that was cool. So um yeah. yeah, that's all I got on that one. Awesome. Another week, another five stories. Um yeah. yeah. Um so I think that's a wrap. Yeah, thanks everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. So looking forward to, you know, doing this again next week and having some people, you know, listen in and provide feedback as much as you can. So, all right. Thanks for joining. See you guys. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.